Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, March 17th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire. And here are today's headlines. Eastern forces in Libya say they've recovered two and a half tons of missing uranium. South Korea and Japan renew ties at a summit in Tokyo. The U.S. charges a Chinese businessman with fraud. The Dutch Farmers Protest Party wins a victory in provincial elections. The U.S. releases footage of the Black Sea drone clash. The Biden administration threatens to ban TikTok unless ByteDance sells its ownership stake. Myanmar officials visit a Rohingya refugee camp in Bangladesh for a repatriation project. Israel says it killed a bomber suspected of coming from Lebanon. GOP governors aligned to oppose ESG investing. And a report finds that maternal mortality in the U.S. is the highest since 1965. Our first story takes us to Libya, where eastern forces say missing uranium is recovered. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Reuters, CNN, France 24, Al Jazeera, and the Daily Mail. Ten drums of uranium ore that had been reported missing in Libya were recovered on Thursday near the border with Chad, according to armed forces in the country's east. The International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, says it is actively working to verify the reports. The IAEA first reported on Wednesday that about two and a half tons of natural uranium went missing from a Libyan site not controlled by the interim government, prompting nuclear safety concerns. IAEA Director Rafael Grossi informed the organization's member states that the organization's inspector found that 10 barrels of natural uranium in the form of uranium ore concentrate were no longer present at the undisclosed location as previously declared. According to Grossi's confidential one-page statement, the discovery was made on Tuesday after inspections initially scheduled for last year were postponed due to the country's bleak security situation. The nuclear watchdog expressed concerns that the missing uranium could pose a radiological and nuclear security risk and announced further steps to determine the circumstances of the uranium's removal and its current location. Under then-leader Muammar Gaddafi, Libya in late 2003 abandoned its nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons program and pledged to limit its ballistic missile stockpile to those with a range of up to 300 kilometers, or about 186 miles. In 2009, the last enriched uranium was reportedly removed from Libya. What remained was so-called yellow cake uranium, of which the UN estimated in 2013 that 6,400 barrels were stockpiled in the town of Sabah in the country's lawless southwest. All right, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were our facts. Now the first narrative spin is a pro-establishment one from France 24. While the recovery of the missing uranium is a major relief, this incident is a reminder that the country's security situation must finally be rectified. The best way to achieve this would be to hold the overdue elections this year to unite a divided country. The various factions must embark on the path of democracy for the good of Libya, and the West can be counted on to support this process. Libyans freed themselves from the Gaddafi dictatorship, and they deserve a democratic and peaceful nation. And global village space brings us an establishment critical narrative. 
The deeper cause underlying the conditions in which uranium can simply disappear ultimately stems from NATO's 2011 military assault on the country with Africa's largest known oil reserves. Though Libyans previously enjoyed a comparatively high standard of living, as well as safety in their own country, the North African nation plunged into chaos after its liberation and virtually turned into a failed state. It is the West that is to blame for the security risks resulting from Libya's fragmentation. I started watching the uh, Chernobyl show that came out a couple years ago. Oh, I love the one on HBO. Yeah. So and, good. Uh, no spoilers. I'm pretty sure it's going to turn out okay. But I've just started, I've just watched the first episode. Uh, that's scary, man. It makes you think we shouldn't be mucking around with this, with this stuff. But it's also like how many things had to go exactly wrong in exactly the right order and how many people had to keep their mouths shut and pretend everything was fine for it to get to that level. Checkpoint after checkpoint after checkpoint after checkpoint was ignored. And then the, um, and then when it happens and they lied to the people, you know, so it's right. it just was But they weren't just lying to the people, they were lying to themselves oh, as yeah. well. Yeah. So the control is the problem, right? So it's the authoritarian government that's well, saying the you problem know, is we, we need you to think but only the w- w- how we want you to think. Well, the kind of a person who rises into a position of authority is the kind of a person that follows the rules and does whatever when times are good. And that's not the kind of person you want in charge when something's wrong, unfortunately. Yeah. Because the renegade who would have told the truth and, and speak truth to power would never become the head of the power plant. Right. So that's what I tell myself anyway. South Korea and Japan renew ties at a Tokyo fence mending summit. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, The Japan Times, Reuters, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and The Jungong Daily. South Korean President Yoon Suk-yul on Thursday met with his Japanese counterpart, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida, in Tokyo for a summit to repair historically strained relations. They agreed to restore shuttle diplomacy and expand cooperation in several areas, such as Seoul's proposal to settle a dispute over wartime labor and Kishida vowing to adhere to the 1998 declaration expressing deep remorse for Japan's 1910 to 1945 colonial rule over the Korean peninsula. Japanese broadcaster NHK reported that the two leaders are preparing to announce the resumption of a bilateral security dialogue, which has been suspended since 2018 after Yoon stated he expects to revitalize security cooperation. The first formal meeting between the leaders of the two countries since 2011 comes as Seoul and Tokyo seek to deepen coordination on regional challenges as they perceive threats from North Korea and China. Security proposals came just hours after North Korea test-fired an intercontinental ballistic missile for the second time this month, reportedly falling into waters west of Japan. Ahead of the summit, and as a result of a three-day dialogue between their industry ministries, Japan also removed the 2019 export restrictions imposed on some key materials to South Korea, while Seoul withdrew its complaint filed with the World Trade Organization. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that story. We'll start this round of spins with Narrative A from the Global Times. Historical disputes between Seoul and Tokyo will not cease overnight, as they are rooted deeply in both nations. So this summit means little in the improvement of their relationship. 
If Yoon insists on bowing to the U.S.-Japan strategy of creating a strong unified front against China, he will risk infuriating domestic public opinion and sacrificing his country's national interests only to serve as a pawn in the destabilization of Asia. And the China Project brings us Narrative B. Despite their long-standing controversies, Japan and South Korea have no other option than to ease tensions as they face mounting threats from North Korea and a rising China. The two like-minded democratic nations have many incentives to deepen their cooperation, which is vital to counter the growing influence of violent authoritarian countries in the region. And here's the first nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community that says there's a 72% chance that the Japan Self-Defense Forces will have tested a Tomahawk missile by mid-2027. The U.S. charges Chinese businessman Guo Wingwei with fraud. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Reuters, CNBC, Forbes, MSN, and Al Jazeera. Guo Wingwei, a Chinese businessman based in New York, has been charged by U.S. authorities with leading a billion-dollar fraud scheme alongside his business partner, Ken Mingji, a dual Hong Kong British citizen who's not yet in custody. He's been charged with 11 criminal counts, including securities fraud, wire fraud, and concealment of money laundering. He was arrested Wednesday and pleaded not guilty in a Manhattan federal court. Guo, an associate of former President Donald Trump's White House advisor Steve Bannon, allegedly promised outsized investment returns via his company GTV Media. He reportedly used some of the funds to purchase personal items, including a New Jersey mansion, a $37 million yacht, and a $3.5 million Ferrari. Authorities have seized $634 million in alleged criminal proceeds from Guo, who also goes by the names Miles Kwok and Ho Wang Kwok. The amount includes a $389 million seizure in September of 2022 from accounts tied to Silvergate Capital, a crypto-focused company that shut down last week. Guo has agreed to detention while his attorney prepares a bail proposal. He's scheduled to next appear in court on April 4th. Guo, a critic of the Chinese government, left China in 2014. He sought asylum in the U.S. in 2017, claiming he was being persecuted by the CCP for exposing corruption within China's leadership. We've got a democratic narrative from Vox. From obscure and inconsistent names to wild accusations against other Chinese dissidents, and now this latest scandal, there's no telling where Guo's allegiance really lies. What is clear, however, is that Bannon comrade Guo is the latest indication that Trump's MAGA circle is surrounded by corruption. And here's a pro-Trump narrative from Breitbart. If found guilty, Guo should undoubtedly bear the brunt of the U.S. justice system, but politics should be left out of this case. Guo is connected to a range of politicians, including former British Prime Minister Tony Blair of the left-wing Labour Party, and assuming guilt by a distant association is dangerous. Dutch Farmers' Protest Party wins victory in a provincial election. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNBC, Reuters, Fox News, Euronews, and the Associated Press. The upstart Farmer Citizen Movement, or BBB, is set to become the largest party in the upper house of parliament following Dutch provincial elections on Wednesday. The BBB party, or Boer Berger Beweging, soared to national prominence after widespread protests against the government's climate and environmental policies, 
and it's set to win more Senate seats than Prime Minister Mark Root's conservative VVD party. A first exit poll projected BBB won 15 out of 75 seats in the Senate, which has the power to block legislation agreed upon in the lower House of Parliament. Meanwhile, the VVD is forecast to drop from 12 to 10 seats. Marking the largest turnout in years, an estimated 57.5% of voters showed up to the election, with the environmentally focused Greens and center-left Labor Party coalition also winning 15 Senate seats. The BBB was founded in 2019 by agricultural journalist Carolyn Vanderplas, and it has already become the Netherlands' third largest political force. Many of the party's supporters are protesting Root's plan to reduce nitrogen emissions by half by the year 2030. The election results cast doubt on Root's plan to slash nitrogen emissions, and the prime minister will face difficulties passing legislation through an opposition Senate. The next national elections are scheduled for 2025. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. These spins will start off with an establishment critical narrative. This comes from Breitbart. This is a big win for the BBB and the Dutch people in general, which has fought back against global tyranny. While the EU shills in the Dutch government tried to destroy Dutch farming and essentially confiscate land illegally, Dutch voters have said enough is enough and stood up for their rights, proving that people can still stand together and send a shocking blow to the establishment. And the pro-establishment narrative comes from the Brussels Times. The Dutch elections are a scary reminder of how conspiracy theories and anti-establishment rhetoric can infect national and even global politics. Dutch extremists peddle dangerous ideas like the Great Replacement Theory, as well as climate change denial to rally voters. Unfortunately, this type of strategy will likely be echoed in other parts of the world. Have you ever been to Holland, Scott? No, have you? I have not, but I had a good friend in college who was Dutch. He was very tall and very blonde. Uh, yep, so he was very Dutch. Yeah. <laughs> he was very Dutch. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that the Dutch attitude, I do really appreciate. That's very, like, in general, right? Uh, uh, the kind of um, stereotypical generalization. So, so what is right? the generalization of the Dutch attitude? Just Always very, splitting checks, right? Very, very direct. Mm. No filter. The U.S. releases footage of a Russian fighter jet in the Black Sea drone clash. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Defense Visual Information Distribution Service, CNN, the Associated Press, TASS, Wall Street Journal, and Ukrainska Pravda. On Thursday, the U.S. European Command released declassified video footage from the encounter between a U.S. surveillance drone and Russian fighter jets over the Black Sea earlier this week. The 42-second clip, part of an encounter that the Pentagon said lasted between 30 and 40 minutes, shows a Russian Su-27 jet approach the back of the U.S. MQ-9 Reaper drone before dumping fuel as it passes over. In another portion of the clip, a Russian jet repeats the action, this time closer to the drone and seemingly disrupting the video transmission. Once video returns, damage can be seen to the drone's propeller, supporting the U.S. case that there was contact between the two aircrafts. The incident caused the drone to crash in the Black Sea and prompted a call between U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and his Russian counterpart Sergei Shoigu on Wednesday, their first contact since last October. In a briefing after the meeting, 
Austin said, we take any potential for escalation very seriously, and that's why I believe it's important to keep the lines of communication open. According to U.S. officials who spoke to CNN, Russia had already reached the crash site in an attempt to recover the drone for intelligence gathering. The U.S. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby would not confirm the development, but said the U.S. had taken action that made it impossible for them to be able to glean anything of intelligence value off the remnants of that drone. Elsewhere, a large fire was reported at the offices of Russia's Intelligence and Security Service, the FSB, in the city of Rostov-on-Don on Thursday. Dozens of fires have taken place at shopping malls, ammunition depots, and other storage facilities inside Russia in the past year. A report from investigative journalist Jack Murphy, citing U.S. officials, has suggested these were coordinated by the CIA as part of a covert sabotage campaign. Meanwhile, Poland announced the first details of its intentions to send MiG-29 warplanes to Ukraine on Thursday, with government spokesperson Peter Mueller saying, We will keep the Russian front from our borders at all times. It came shortly after the nation's defense minister, Marius Blaschak, stated that his country's counterintelligence service had dismantled a Russian spy ring operation within Poland. On the ground, Ukrainian officials said one civilian was killed and 11 more were injured in Russian attacks on the Donetsk region in the past day. Three civilians were reported injured in the Kherson region, while Russian attacks were also recorded in the regions of Luhansk, Kharkiv, Dnipropetrovsk, and Zaporizhia, without further reports of civilian casualties. Pro-Russia officials said four civilians were injured in Ukrainian attacks on Donetsk over the same time period. All right. Thanks for that rundown, Melissa. TASS brings us the pro-Russia narrative. This collision over the Black Sea happened because the West has repeatedly refused to take action to avert dangerous mid-air incidents. Despite the attempts of numerous Russian delegations to address the potential for risky proximity between aircraft, especially around the borders of the alliance and Russia, Western countries have pointedly ignored the warnings. The U.S. purposely flew into this restricted zone, but Russian fighter jets avoided escalating the situation by refusing to engage their weapons. Here's the anti-Russia narrative from CBS News. The Russian fighter pilots deliberately made a U.S. drone unflyable by recklessly crashing into the MQ-9. The aggressive action taken against the drone which was merely carrying out routine operations in the airspace, forced U.S. officials to deliberately crash the object. Moscow's denial of any culpability in this incident is ludicrous. And the Metaculous Prediction community brings us another nerd narrative. This one says there's a 10% chance that there will be more than four deaths between Russia and NATO forces outside of Ukraine before July 1st of 2023. A bird uh, pooped on me the other day. Oh no! Yeah, they say it's good luck. I don't. I don't agree with that. It didn't, oh yeah, that's that's crap. That's hokum. <laughs> yeah, you got that right. I was having a great day. I took the boys to the zoo. We had cheesesteaks in Philadelphia. Nice. It was all good, and then it didn't really bother me that much. But it was kind of like, huh? All right, there you go. That's yep. bird poop. <laughs> not on so me. great. Yeah, right on my shirt, right in the middle of my shirt. It was oh. just <laughs> like if I had a superhero emblem, I would be like bird poop man. It was just right there. <laughs> Yeah. I spill something on my shirt every day, regardless. You know, either me or my children do. And half the time it's me, honestly, you know. So, yeah. It's just another day. 
Yeah. Splat. One time I was waiting at the bus stop in Capitol Hill in Seattle to go to work and a bird pooped right. I wear glasses and a bird pooped right in my eyeball, right in between <laughs> my glasses and my eye. It just, it couldn't, you know, it didn't get on my glasses at all. It just got right on my eye well, and I wasn't impressive. looking up. I still went to work. I think I should have just went home, right? Yeah, you you just go home. You say you tell your boss what happened. They're like, "Oh, okay, yeah, you yeah, should work from home." I think the right thing to do would have been to just go home. I think at this at that point. Yeah, that's a I, that's a sign from the from the great beyond. Yeah, I think I should have walked home, grabbed a coffee from Vivachi on the way home, and just went inside. Yeah, yeah. But if it is lucky, then I'm lucky. So yeah, there you good. go. <laughs> The U.S. threatens to ban TikTok if ByteDance doesn't sell its ownership stake. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The Wall Street Journal, Business Insider, The New York Post, UPI, and NPR Online News. The Biden administration has demanded ByteDance divest its stake in the video app TikTok or face a possible U.S. ban. The move is the most dramatic in a series of recent steps taken by American officials and legislators concerned that user data could potentially be passed on to the PRC. This policy change represents a major shift for the Biden administration, which has come under fire from some Republicans who allege that the administration hasn't taken a tough enough stance on the perceived security threat posed by the app. According to TikTok executives, ByteDance has 60 percent of its shares owned by global investors. 20% owned by its employees, and another 20% owned by its owners. However, the owner's shares carry outsized voting rights. On Wednesday, TikTok spokesperson Brooke Oberwetter said, if protecting national security is the objective, divestment doesn't solve the problem. A change in ownership would not impose any new restrictions on data flows or access. In response to growing bipartisan concerns, TikTok has committed to a wide-reaching $1.5 billion plan called Project Texas, which would enact a stronger firewall between TikTok and employees of its Beijing parent company. TikTok CEO Shou Zichu will travel to Washington, D.C. next week to testify before Congress and address concerns about the app's links to the Chinese Communist Party. On March 23rd, he's expected to appear before a House Energy and Commerce Committee. Okay, those were the facts, and here's the narrative spin, starting with an anti-China narrative from the Wall Street Journal. TikTok developer ByteDance has come under increased scrutiny from governments and regulators over fears that Beijing could gain access to the company's database, something that could be used to potentially harvest users' data to spy on Western nations to advance China's interests. This dramatic move by the Biden administration demanding divestment or a nationwide ban on TikTok is based on well-founded security concerns. And the Global Times brings us the pro-China narrative. The U.S. government has not presented any meaningful evidence that the TikTok app poses a threat to national security. Instead, it has attempted to spread misinformation and unreasonably suppress legitimate private firms. The U.S. crackdown on TikTok is nothing less than xenophobic bullying. They should stop the harassment and start providing a fair, transparent, and non-discriminatory business environment for foreign companies. And there's another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community saying there's a 25% chance that the U.S. will ban TikTok before 2024. 
I feel like there's a there's a fact there's a point in there, a couple things. And one is the spokesperson Brooke Oberwetter saying if the national security is the objective, then this doesn't change anything. You're not actually by changing ownership, you're not changing the data flow. Right. So that seems like a pretty big oversight. So I wonder if the Biden administration is just really just trying to ban it, knowing yeah. that China's not going to do anything differently. Right. Without a deeper understanding of this data flow, it's hard to know if what she's saying is true or not. But <sighs> it's tough to know where to stand on this because what I always say, I think people have heard me say this before, like we've been pushing our blue jeans and rock and roll on the rest of the world for 100 years. So isn't it just turn about as fair play if they want to push their app on us? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, it's pretty fun. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't know. What are you What are you going to do with your spare time if it's banned? In oh the US? my gosh, I might end up writing that book. <laughs> Coming oh, successful no. in some way. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Myanmar officials visit Bangladesh refugee camp. Myanmar officials visit a Bangladesh refugee camp for a repatriation project. Here are the facts as agreed upon by UNB, Al Jazeera, Dhaka Tribune, BBC News, Reuters, and The Washington Post. A 22-member delegation from Myanmar arrived on Wednesday in Teknof, Cox's Bazar, to verify the information about Rohingya refugees living in Bangladesh's camps that are enrolled for repatriation and willing to return to the Rakhine state. Reuters reported, citing a Bangladesh official, that 1,140 Rohingya refugees are to be repatriated under this pilot project, with 711 cases having already been cleared. It is unclear when they would be going home. Myanmar and Bangladesh are reputedly working to start repatriation before the monsoon season gets underway in the next few months. Conditions for the Muslim-majority Rohingya and Rakhine have allegedly improved. This visit comes a few days after Bangladesh investigators stated that the blaze on March 5 in Cox's Bazaar, which left tens of thousands of Rohingya refugees homeless, was a planned act of sabotage carried out by militant groups seeking to dominate the camps. The Chinese ambassador to Bangladesh, Yao Wen, is reportedly hopeful that the first wave of displaced Rohingya would return to Myanmar soon. At least 348 Rohingya refugees died at sea last year trying to escape poor conditions in Bangladesh and reach Malaysia and Indonesia. Nearly a million Rohingya people have sought refuge in southeast Bangladesh since the Myanmar military allegedly launched a devastating campaign against the country's Muslim minority six years ago. Thanks for running down the facts there, Melissa. We have a Narrative A from Eurasia Review. This is the first and most promising move to solve the Rohingya crisis, which has been disrupting South and Southeast Asia for six years. Bangladesh has long requested Myanmar to speed up the repatriation process, but both COVID and the army's takeover disrupted the process. Because the situation is calmer in Rakhine now, this is the right time for repatriation to start. And here's Narrative B from Benar News. Though every refugee must be allowed to voluntarily repatriate, conditions in Myanmar's Rakhine state are not auspicious for the sustainable return and reintegration of Rohingya refugees yet. The military junta is implementing this pilot project due to pressure from the international community, particularly from China, not out of its true goodwill. Discriminatory policies against Rohingya people are sadly likely to continue. (laughs) 
Israel's army claims a bomber suspected of coming from Lebanon is killed. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Naharanet, Reuters, Al Jazeera, and the Times of Israel. The Israeli army announced that an armed man suspected of entering the country via Lebanon blew up a car before being killed by Israeli forces not long after, raising the risk of renewed tensions with Hezbollah, an Iranian-backed Lebanese Shiite armed group and political party. The alleged attacker placed a roadside bomb that seriously injured a driver near Megiddo Junction in northern Israel on Monday. The military said that he was stopped at a checkpoint soon after before being shot and killed and was allegedly wearing an explosive vest and was armed. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant stated on Thursday that those involved in the attack would be found and held accountable, saying, we will find the right timing and appropriate manner to hit back. Though the incident occurred on Monday, it wasn't officially announced until Wednesday, as the Israeli security establishment held several meetings over two days under a gag order. In response to the attack, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu cut a visit to Germany short. The Israeli military believed the attacker came from Lebanon because they considered the bomb's design to be unusual and said it didn't appear to be similar to explosive devices used by Palestinian groups in recent months. Israel and Hezbollah have a long history of animosity. Following Israel's 1982 invasion of southern Lebanon, Hezbollah, backed by Iran, launched an armed campaign against Israeli forces. Israel withdrew from Lebanon in 2000, but fought another war with Hezbollah in 2006. More recently, Israel has struck targets associated with Iran and Hezbollah in Syria since the onset of its civil war in 2011. Thanks, Scott, for those facts. The pro-Israel spin comes from the Jerusalem Post. Israel is facing an Iranian-backed axis of terror. Though the explosive used raises many questions, and Hezbollah might not have directly launched the attack, that doesn't mean Iran wasn't involved. Hamas and PIJ are both backed by Iran, and both groups have increased their activity in the northern West Bank, close to northern Israel. However, this could still be a terrorist attack unrelated to Iran, as a thorough investigation needs to be carried out. And Al-Mayadeen brings us the pro-Palestine narrative. It's unclear if Hezbollah was involved or not, but either way, attacks like this are a symptom of Israel's occupation of Palestine, as well as areas in Lebanon and Syria. Violence is a terrible thing, but the violence of occupation is an everyday occurrence that is far greater than any attack like this. GOP governors align to oppose ESG investing. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by The Hill, CNBC, The Daily Wire, and Fox News. Nineteen GOP governors led by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on Thursday announced in a joint press release their opposition to an investing strategy known as ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governance. ESG is an acronym for Prioritizing Environmental, Social, and Governance When Investing a philosophy that has drawn much criticism from conservatives in the U.S. Alabama, Alaska, Arkansas, Georgia, Idaho, Iowa, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, New Hampshire, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Utah, West Virginia, and Wyoming have joined Florida in the announcement. In the press release, the governors decried ESG for destabilizing the American economy and the global financial system and insist 
that major asset managers should do all they can to maximize shareholder value rather than focusing on woke ideology. President Joe Biden's Department of Labor has a rule that encourages investors to include ESG in their investment decisions. Congress this month passed a bill to end the rule, but Biden is expected to veto it. DeSantis has been vocal about his opposition to ESG, even writing in his recent book that it should be a government priority to take crippling action against it. Thanks for laying out the facts, Melissa. Unsurprisingly, we have some diametrically opposed political narratives. Breitbart brings us the Republican spin. ESG is a dangerous menace to America as it weaponizes investments against citizens through woke ideology. Leaders and residents of all freedom-loving states should do whatever's necessary to prevent its harmful proliferation. The Democratic narrative comes from Clean Technica. This is just another misguided shot in the Republicans' war against so-called woke culture. ESG investing has been around for decades, and it aims to hold to account investors and managers of companies that have negative health or environmental impacts on society. And we end on a somber note as U.S. maternal mortality hits its highest level since 1965. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, Time Magazine, Forbes, NPR Online News, The Wall Street Journal, and CNN. The maternal mortality rate in the U.S. rose 40 percent to 1,205 deaths in 2021, compared with 861 deaths in 2020 and 754 deaths in 2019, according to a report released Thursday by the National Center for Health Statistics. The dramatic rise, which was compounded by COVID, has pushed the maternal mortality rate to 33 deaths per 100,000 live births, the highest since 1965. Furthermore, the report found the maternal mortality rate among black women was 2.6 times the rate for white women, at 69.9 deaths per 100,000 live births. The report also showed that maternal mortality rate increased with the mother's age. Among women 40 years and older, there was a death rate of 138.5 per 100,000 live births, 6.8 times higher than for women under 25. The U.S. maternal mortality rate in 2021 was more than triple the rate of Canada, eight times the rate of the U.K., and nearly 11 times the rate of Australia. The leading causes of pregnancy-related deaths in the U.S. include mental health conditions, cardiovascular conditions, hemorrhage, and hypertension. Thanks for the facts on that final story, Scott. Narrative A is our first spin. This is provided by the New York Times. COVID had a dramatic and tragic effect on maternal mortality rates, but we cannot let the fact obscure the reality that structural racism, systemic discrimination, and health inequities compounded the crisis. Until issues related to income inequality, family planning, education, and racial injustice are addressed, pregnancy-related deaths will continue to soar in the country and disproportionately affect the most vulnerable. And Narrative B comes from Forbes. These results are disheartening, but not surprising considering the myriad of external facts causing them, such as the COVID pandemic and the influence of higher rates of diabetes and obesity. While the U.S. must address these crucial issues, pregnant women also have agency and could take steps to lower their mortality risk, including by maintaining a healthy weight, eating a balanced diet, and ceasing the use of any substances. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, March 17th, 2023. And happy St. Patrick's Day. 
Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.